0: Sorry. Sorry.
1: It's 830 a.m. Saturday, July 21st, 2018.
0: I'm Bill. I'm Diane. It's
1: the Bill and Diane show.
0: <laughs> What the heck? You Sorry. just dissolved there. I
1: did. I, I dissolved. I cut off the show before I wanted to. How you doing?
0: I'm doing very well. I'm feeling very relaxed this morning for the first time in a couple of months.
1: Wow, that's right. Yeah, the busy time is over. Well, or the, 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 the kind intense. of siege, yeah. kind of intensity has lifted only just like, yeah. like less than 24 hours ago. Yeah. Wow. So that's gotta, You gotta feel like you're kind of floating now. Yeah. Like, you know, you, if those times when you push real hard. What was the thing? Oh, if you push real hard like this with one hand pushing up against the other, and then you put your arm down, it feels like your arm's kind of lifting up off. Yeah. The, yeah.
0: That's Boy, I that was a
1: very visual image to use on an audio-type uh, Yes, it, it
0: was very visual.
1: Yeah, you really needed the uh, sketches and the, and the you know, I did some schematics. I
2: got myself a cup of coffee here, and I'm going to take me a sip. And I was,
1: had it all laid <laughs> out here for Diane, but... You folks c- couldn't see all that. Yeah, I an Oh, well. <laughs> it has been a hectic week here in Lake Amphetamine, as per usual. Over to you, Chet. <laughs> Tell us all about it. What does it, what's it feel like to be floating? No, I'm sure that a lot of, you know, mystics out there are wondering well, what it feels like to be levitating.
0: It's <laughs> it's a short duration because we're going to go into a <laughs> another period of busyness and in the uh, upcoming month of september but that one's far less critical right but i i really kind of enjoy that feeling of of having worked really hard and and had a a pressure situation and then getting out of it because usually the ones that i have participated in in my life and I don't know that it's this way for everyone, but it's sort of like the the deadline approaches and approaches, and it's horrible. And ah, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. You're you're screeching up to the precipice. You're almost going over, and then everything ends well, and you feel like wow. Your,
1: your parachute opens,
0: and you're like a- ah yeah wow. But there's a it's a nice feeling because it gives you a feeling of accomplishment, and um, I think. I know that people are always uh, talking about work as a bad thing, and I've always thought it's uh, it's kind of a treasure to be able to to produce good work in in the well, world. Yeah,
1: if you're in a if you're in a milieu that feeds uh, uh, some aspect of your own personality, which I think you have been in your work life uh, for the most part, all the way through, uh, with a few major hiccups and stuff like that but now you're in kind of like this i mean you could not have designed a better job to kind of mine the the resource that you have become at the u i mean it's like they it's like the system changed to accommodate the absorption of your particular knowledge because i really feel like in terms of university policy you are the you are the only bearer of that information in this new office and so I think a key element of the whole shared services model is going to be getting all your knowledge dispersed before you uh, before you step away.
0: Well I wouldn't say I'm the only one of policy knowledge but I'm the only one in certain categories right. of policy knowledge because my colleagues all, we all have, it's kind of like this super team that we all have uh, certain knowledge right. of certain aspects. And, and we are in depth in, in our own particular fields. Right. So The things that it's you know the most amazing. about,
1: nobody else even comes close to knowing.
0: Yeah, you know. and, and the same for my colleagues. Right. I don't have any, uh, I'm not even close to their specialties. So we are sharing with each other and it's been, it's been a joy. It but, seems
1: like you guys in on this team that you're part of, you are the legacy piece that will carry the old into the new. And you're kind of this human bridge between uh, an outmoded system and the way the university is going to carry forward for probably the next at least 10 years. Although, you know, the last time it was like 33 years, but I don't think it's going to be nearly no, that No, I
0: doubt that that will be. But I think that they, the system that they've chosen is going to, keep morphing you know that's that's what's happening now with software is that it keeps having updates right it can be added to you don't need
1: a new a whole new piece of software to make the old one work better or anything like that it's just yeah
0: but anyway yes it's a brave new world and but I've uh, even though I had huge amounts of volume I've never felt throughout this time I have not felt bad or under pressure or under the wheel. No. I've just felt like there's a, a volume that I had to get through. Yeah. But anyway, so last night I really enjoyed our viewing of the... the
1: Robin Williams.
0: Robin Williams documentary, documentary. yeah. On HBO. Man, you know, I've always been a biography fan, ever since I was a, a kid. I remember there was a series when I was a child that was uh, about the childhoods of some of the people who became heroic in American history. And I just loved that series. And so when I, as I went through my life, I've always been enamored of learning about a person's biography because there's, it's interesting to see the life arc in everybody's case and what launched them and how their lives progressed from that launch but this one with Robin Williams had so many areas of interest for me because you and I have been talking about um, some of the issues that that I always see with my artistic friends and and my husband. You know, the, the aspect that the artistic person themselves can be so successful in delivering their message and and having fans who follow them, but they still aren't quite sure about, I mean, there's um, there was a line in, in the documentary that I wish that I had truly committed to memory, but it was talking about the self-worth piece, you know, that the people doubt their self worth. And I sometimes wonder, and especially when I see Robin Williams, because he was so successful and such a genius, you know, at at amusing people and and yet he doubted himself. And and there were a lot of uh, friends who were talking about that, but also he talked about that in some of the conversation that he was having with his son, I think, is what that underlined. Those, those was who a, were
1: taken from a bunch of different interviews, some of which were, were Mark Maron, WTF. Oh, okay. And there were a couple of clips from his...
0: Sp- I didn't know exactly where the clips were coming from, but I just... I was not always a huge Robin Williams fan for his stand-up and stuff because he was frenetic in a way that I felt a little like, whoa, you know, even though I found it funny, I could only take it in short bursts. But as an actor, I I definitely felt that he had some kind of key into me, you know, that and I think it was what they were saying was his vulnerability. And I... I sensed that he really had a way of really making you feel things deeply so it was so fascinating for me to to hear this as a portrait of someone who was struggling with that artistic um, issue that I think most people have and it really made me ponder because I have artistic tendencies but I've never tried to make my living from it and I think all the things that I have even about my artistic hobbies and everything of that feeling of oh you know this is just about me nobody cares about this why should I think I have anything to say and all that if you're if you're taking it to a different magnitude of this is how I'm gonna get my bread and and my life and my livelihood—that's got to exponentially raise that up, mm-hmm. uh, and make you doubt even more about how valid is this. You
1: well, know? I think the part of it that is that brings about that self-doubt is the fact that if you're going to make a living at it, then part, of, then a great part of your business has to be saying, "Look at me." Yeah. Saying I'm better at this than the next guy, or you know, you you're going to benefit from knowing me and exposing yourself to me, and you know that takes uh, it takes a level of I don't want to say it's ego because it's not ego. It's this, it, but it's uh, I don't know. It's a it's a level of salesmanship that personally I do not have. I, I don't possess it. I've never pretended to possess it, and it's. Completely separate from anything creative that you're doing in yeah. your life it is you are you are uh, you're asked to occupy two worlds at once that are in many ways opposed to each other in, 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 yeah, in,
0: yeah. In, when
1: you think of the purity of of a creative process set against selling yeah uh, those are pretty diametrically opposed almost in their essential energies uh, disciplines so It's hard to justify one by the use of the other. And that's what I think it comes down to, is it's hard to take this pure thing that is, in essence, mysterious and sell it like it's something that you are really even responsible for when you know in your heart that it's an accident that it even came through you. you Yeah. So it's a weird kind of dichotomy gets set up between the art itself and trying to get the art seen or heard or whatever uh, that I think is as is really at the root of the struggle of that struggle. I know it was for me, and I finally just said, I'm not gonna. I don't want to waste that much energy on doing something that that's try, that is an overt type of trying to justify what I do instinctually.
0: Right. You know.
1: It just doesn't. The two things just do not jibe, and uh, you 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 do the one at the expense of the other. Yeah. And to tip it into the the professional sphere gives you so much less time to be creative that it you know it's you can't justify. It, you know?
0: But the other thing that that I particularly noticed in this biography, other than that question that is always fascinating to me. I mean, even to the point that when we were watching the Mr. Rogers biography that he had self-doubts too. And you think, how could he possibly have self-doubts when it was so successful? And same thing with Robin Williams. But the other thing that really was interesting to me in this one, which I don't know why it was so poignant in this one, but sort of the youth versus age, uh, because David Letterman was talking about their youth together, Billy Crystal, um, and you're seeing photos and uh, of the people when they're young, and, and one of the things that David Letterman said was, that was one of the best periods of my life. Everything was yet to be written. There was nothing written yet. Mm-hmm. And it really made me think about that trajectory because the more you have written about your life so to speak I mean the more you've lived the more you've written and when you first start off in any profession it's it's all open everything is who knows what's gonna happen maybe you'll fail maybe you'll succeed you don't know but you're just out there doing it and uh, the more that you live the more you, you can't erase the, the story that you've lived through. You can change it. You can decide to flip into some different career. Or you could do a lot of different things, but you still have this body of story behind you. And somehow seeing the photos of all these people when they were younger and when they looked far more carefree, it really struck me more than most. Biographies, and I don't know if it's because it was a bunch of comedians or well, uh,
1: well, it's all contained in our lifetimes too. And yeah, I mean, our, all his whole story of his success is contained within our awareness of popular culture. So right. We saw Robin. I saw Robin Williams. I saw the Happy Days episode that Robin Williams was yeah. on when it first aired, and so it's it's all because all that whole story is contained within our lives. Maybe that's part of what
0: maybe. But anyway, it was a uh, interesting thing to be. I find it interesting to watch people's biographies because you're having these thoughts about different aspects of the what you're seeing. You aren't just following the story. You're you're thinking about it in relationship to your own life. You know the way that you feel about your life, uh, and how it's progressed or whatever. But I I was thinking about that everything yet to be written because i remember my parents my father one time said i mean they'd they would talk about the first apartment that they ever lived in when they first married with such affection even though it was this basement apartment with pipes running through the ceiling and but it was because it was the beginning of their relationship and everything was yet to be and even when people establish themselves more, there was always that, uh, that feeling of that time when you were...
1: Well, I think because you've, you're in that youthful time, you're, you have yet to make those choices that set the course of your life, where 40 years later you're looking back from the other side of all yeah. of those choices. And because you are forced by life to make choices, your life gets channeled into specific little pathways right. and stuff like that. And so that sense of all the pathways being open to you because you haven't made any of those choices yet, you remember that time with fondness because there it was, it was just this openness to it. you Well, know?
0: and I especially see it when I'm around all my younger friends, and I've been around some of my friends while they're making those choices, yeah. those life choices, and uh, you kind of forget it from your own life, how you got to the place you are now and all the myriad of choices that it took to get there. But as you're watching a younger person going through their path selection and watching them trying to figure out the best one because you forget that about your own life of how difficult it was to make a choice between this and that and this and that. I mean, there's so many and those things. First,
1: you... Those first choices, you know, you're giving something up. Yeah. Something is something is passing away from you when you get make those choices. And maybe you don't see it till later, but I feel like like watching my kids and stuff like that, I I feel like I'm seeing this period of their life where there's this idealistic I wanna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do this and then it passes that passes on.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's a weird kind of period so yeah the period before you have to start making those decisions will always have a kind of romance and a kind of free freewheeling quality to it and you've and it felt feels adventurous in retrospect like you know I had no idea what was gonna happen yeah. next wow it was so great was,
0: but when you look at a person who's in that period yeah. it's a so much they might look like
1: a, you know a total buffoon
0: but <laughs> well but and they are they're suffering a lot more than uh it isn't just carefree either there's also a element of oh my god how am i gonna make it in this world
1: right and that's the that's the the first real experience of that kind of anxiety which leads directly to making decisions which then limit your possibilities
0: and the other thing that is always interesting about a biography is that there's a compression of life into a very short span so you're seeing somebody from their childhood to their old age in this hour and a half to two hour biography. And from seeing it from that standpoint as the story that it became, watching that life arc, I think that's the reason why biographies fascinate me so much because obviously you can't cover every moment of that person's life or, uh, and you wouldn't know it Mm -hmm. anyway, but, but seeing certain aspects of that life, are, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, I just, uh, I now want to watch some of the Robin Williams films that, that I liked and some that I never saw. But um, yeah, he's a, he was a complicated and interesting person. Eep, yep,
1: he so. was. He was indeed. It was interesting. I, went, I you know, they didn't go into his uh, into his, his last stages that much. But the I would imagine that the combination of being diagnosed with Parkinson's and then experiencing the the effects of the Lewy, Lewy body body dementia, which sounds like I don't know that much about it, and I haven't researched that. But what I've heard about it is it's kind of like your brain kind of shuts off. I mean, I guess listening to I heard other interviews with Bob. Bobcat Goldthwaite, who was a good friend of Robin Williams, was talking about how he would just sit and stare into space for an hour or two, and then suddenly kind of come back. Yeah, and I would imagine that as a, a body experiencing that, that would be really hard to take, especially oh, yeah. if you'd already been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and you're so that your trajectory.
0: It was not, and when you had
1: clarity of mind, your trajectory would look extremely grim.
0: Yeah, I would think so too. Yeah,
1: because I think Lewy body dementia is not unlike uh, Alzheimer's in that it, your brain is parts portions of your brain are kind of like shorting out. Yeah. So they'll, you'll be on and off and on and off, but you end up off, and it does not does not look good. And it it's weird because I feel like I. Had a little bit of that kind of experience when I was still working. Yeah. And I suddenly felt like I was not doing as well. Uh, And I couldn't figure out why. And I finally had to kind of accept the fact that I was having some kind of cognitive issue. And I couldn't do the things. From the MS. Yeah, I couldn't do the things. and, And stress. Because it's just, it was like this the final thing was that the amount of stress that it put on me to make this realization. Only made the problem. Worse. It was just this
0: oh, yeah. cascade
1: of of uh, symptom and result, and, and you know, it was like the result of the symptoms made the symptoms worse, and that, yeah, you couldn't. Get, I couldn't get out of that loop, yeah. and uh, it was like day after day after week after month of just kind of feeling it going away, was not a good feeling. It was, and it was unlike any other feeling I'd ever had before because how do you think about something that's happening in the place where you do your thinking? Uh, yeah. You know, it's like... Yeah. A, so, for somebody who is self-analytical and self-critical... Pardon
2: me, I'm going to drink of coffee.
1: ...and has uh, a good, healthy dose of self-doubt... You boy. ...in them already anyway. It's good coffee. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that would be a very hard thing to be dealing with in a kind of deteriorating trajectory. Yeah. You know, so... Anyway, well. it's, it's an interesting story. Yeah, one of many interesting stories. I've been studying Gary Snyder for the last week because I fell into it sideways. I've been reading that Nobody Home book, which is a collection of interviews and correspondence between Gary Snyder and the South African writer, Julia Martin.
0: That's where you got that quote?
1: Yeah. yeah. Mostly their interactions were mostly in the uh, mid 80s to early 90s and that sent me into picking up this coffee table book which i regret is a coffee table book the one complaint i have about the book poets on peaks on the peaks is that it's a coffee table book yeah incredibly cumbersome it's got some great photographs in it but i would love it if there was a text only edition that you know that you could buy in paperback and carry around with you it is not it's just a great book about and it's a biography of a period of Snyder's life that very little has been written by him about I mean he, you can read his poems that he wrote during that period of time but there aren't there isn't that much biographical information about Gary Snyder and his little life in the way that I would like there to be maybe there will be after he after he dies but anyway it's just an interesting period because it was the McCarthy era uh, you know Gary Snyder went through being blacklisted he'd been working in the North Cascades lookouts for three summers and suddenly he couldn't get a job with the Forest Service at all, anywhere, because of the McCarthy uh, blacklists and Whoa. stuff. And he's...
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, he was going to what he thought was going to be his his lookout job um, south of Mount Rainier. Um, and he'd already bought all his food and secured the job and stuff like that and was getting ready to go and they fired him. And he, when he was in Portland on his way to that job, he was staying with friends and they were watching the McCarthy hearings on TV and there were all these professors and former students of Reed College where Gary Snyder had gone to college. People he'd known in college were before the House Un-American Activities Committee televised, uh, you know, in Portland and they were naming names and things like that. Nobody ever named his name but, you know, people that, guy a guy he lived with when he was at Reed College got named and, you know all this stuff was happening and so there's that aspect of it there's the San Francisco six gallery scene is described in detail in this book as well as you know all these guys experiences being fire lookouts in the North Cascades right up the road here so Wow, it's a cool book in that it's really a well-rounded document of that period but it's got some great photos of all the fire lookouts up above Diablo Lake and things like that and a lot of history of the Skagit Valley and, stuff like that so it's a really cool book but it sends me back and you know i've had like every gary snyder book down off the shelf and looking for looking for poems that are mentioned that i can't find anywhere and you know stuff like that it's been kind of fun you know. and tomorrow would is my dad's 87th birthday he would be 87 t- tomorrow so i'm thinking about that too and I'm thinking about. I had a great conversation with Cat yesterday on the phone, talking about my new recording and what I want to do and what the options are and who knows people and you know whether I want to record some stuff out on Vashon and all of these other things going on. And you and I had a, the discussion of whether I should do a GoFundMe kind of or a, what was the other? What's the other one called?
0: I was thinking IndieGoGo, Indiegogo. is the. That...
1: Uh, campaign to raise money to make the recording which led into the conversation about you know ego and and self-doubt and then we watched the Robin Williams episode and now we're back where we started so I thought I've been wanting for a while as I was thinking about how I wanted this new album to sound I've been listening to a lot of music Uh, songwriters who I haven't really listened to like that much like Martin Sexton and Guy Clark and Guy Clark uh, an amazing consummate Songwriter in kind of the Americana uh, vein. And I just, you know, I have not listened to enough Guy Clark in my life. So I've been listening to some Guy Clark. I like the sonic qualities of the records and I like his songwriting. And I just wanted to play a couple of Guy Clark songs.
0: Well, let's do it. All
1: right then.
2: Pawn shop in an older part of town something caught my eye and I stopped and turned around I stepped inside and there I spied in the middle of it all was a beat-up old guitar hanging on the wall what do you want for that piece of junk I asked the old man he just smiled and took it down, and he put it in my hand. Said, you tell me what it's worth. You're the one who wants it. Tune it up, play a song, and let's just see what haunts it. So I hit a couple of chords in my old country way of strumming. And then my fingers turned to lightning. Man, I never heard it coming. It was like I always knew I just don't know where I learned it It wasn't nothing but the truth So I just reared back and burned it couldn't pick. Up and down the neck, man, I never missed a lick. The guitar almost played itself and there was nothing I could do. It was getting hard to tell just who was playing who. When I finally put it down, I couldn't catch my breath. My hands were shaking and I was scared to death. The old man finally got up, said, where in the hell you been? I've been waiting all these years for you to stumble in. And then he took down an old dusty case and said, go on, pack it up. You don't owe me nothing. And then he said, good luck. There was something spooky in his voice and something strange on his face. And when he shut the lid, I saw my name was on the case. Thank you He did not like it watered down He took it straight up and neat It was bad enough for him You know it's bad enough for me Hemingway's whiskey You know it's tough out there The good news is hard to find Living one word to the next One line at a time Now there's more to life than whiskey There's more to words than rhyme Sometimes nothing works Sometimes nothing shines Like Hemingway's whiskey Grows dim. Live hard, die hard. This one's for him. Hemingway's whiskey, warm and smooth and mean. Even when it burns, it'll always finish clean. He did not like it watered down. He took it straight up and neat. If it was bad enough for him, you know. It's bad enough for me. Hemingway's whiskey.